Coming up on Tech Nation, how exactly did Edward Snowden deliver those classified government documents into the hands of the media? Former Washington Post investigative journalist Bart Gelman, the author of Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State, relates his off-the-grid experience. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the potential for genetic susceptibility to the COVID-19 virus and other aspects of genetic predisposition which even extend to the success or failure of medical treatments. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2011, National Geographic explorer and residence Wade Davis wrote Into the Silence, The Great War, Mallory, and the Conquest of Everest. Today, a full century later, we have satellite imaging and GPS, satellite phones, and the experience of a hundred years of climbing. But in the 1920s, what did climbers know about climbing Mount Everest? They knew very, very little more. I mean, you know, the Everest had sort of emerged in the last years of the Raj as sort of the third pole. You know, the British and, and Empire of Explorers had lost the race for the North and South Pole, and here in their very midst was this third pole that rose into the heavens. And so the quest for Everest began really as a sort of a gesture of re redemption for an Empire of Explorers that had lost those races. But because of the intervening war, where so much of Britain was destroyed by the mud of Flanders, it emerged as a kind of a gesture of regeneration for a nation bled white by war. So that was always my interest in the story of George Mallory. In a sense, the, the empire, the great global empire of Britain, has really been gnawed by the Great War. Well, you know, that was a seminal event of our times. Um, you know, Churchill famously described the Second World War as just the, extinct, the um, second half of the First World War. He called it the Thirty Years' War. And he famously said, never there was, was there a war less necessary to fight um, than the first or more necessary to win than the second. I became interested in the story of George Mallory really in a serendipitous way. I was traveling 4,000 miles across Tibet as part of an ecological survey in the spring of 96 when the disaster happened on Everest that John Krakauer so powerfully wrote about in his book Into Thin Air. And uh, with me was Daniel Taylor, who was a uh, son and grandson of medical missionaries, and his father had been a great friend of Howard Somerville, who climbed with George Mallory in 1922 and 24. And the very next fall, Daniel and I were back on the east face of Everest, in the Kanchung face, in the Gama Valley, trying to photograph clouded leopards. And Daniel, in his inimitable way, began to speak of these Englishmen in tweeds reading Shakespeare to each other in the snow at 20,000 feet. And that was the Everest of his imaginings, not the kind of ignoble commercial world of today. And as he spoke to me, I became enchanted by these men. Who were they? And I was never interested in whether George Mallory made it to the top or not on that fateful day. You know, the story goes on June 8th, 1924, he's spotted by Noel Dell with his young companion, Sandy Irvin, uh, going strong for the top on the Northeast Ridge with a mist coming in that envelops their memory and myth, and they have never seen or heard from again. The question is, did Mallory make it before he died? And what interested me is what spirit c carried him on. 
1921, the reconnaissance of Everest was just that. They had to find the mountain. They had to march 400 miles off the map to, to get, find it. To find it, to get to the base <laughs> of a place that had been seen from Campuzong, but never approached by any European. And on that approach march, um, a, a high altitude physiologist by the name of Arthur Kellis, 56 years old, too old for Everest, famously died of exhaustion. And he was buried at a Tibetan fort called Campuzong. Now, according to historians of Everest, in 1921, only one man kept a journal. But I found, alive, four doors from the house I was born in Vancouver, the son of a man who did, Oliver Wheeler, unknown, unsung hero of 1921, the man from the Survey of India, seconded to the expedition, the man, not Mallory, it was Wheeler who found the doorway to the mountain, the route up the East Rongbuk to the North Coal. He was the one who fa famously found the chink in the armor of Everest. And Wheeler kept a journal. And when I visited his, his son, he pulled these two volumes off his shelf, and I, I was breathless, never before seen by Everest historian. You've been listening to a 2011 Tech Nation interview with National Geographic Explorer-in-Residence Wade Davis about his book, Into the Silence, The Great War, Mallory, and the Conquest of Everest. Today, a University of British Columbia anthropology professor, Wade Davis has recently published Magdalena, River of Dreams, a story of Columbia. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, investigative journalist Bart Gelman takes us inside his interactions with Edward Snowden, which resulted in receiving classified government documents. We'll talk about his book, Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft discusses our potential for genetic susceptibility to the COVID-19 virus a new field of inquiry. Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Bart Gelman. Well, Bart, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you know, it's one thing to be an investigative journalist. I mean, you weren't looking into who pilfered the bake sale money. You were investigating the activities of security agencies in the U.S. and internationally, not to mention the person who crossed them, put you firmly in the eye of numerous governmental agencies and operatives. How, how, how was that working for you? Yeah, well, it was a new experience, uh, and it was it was numerous governmental agencies from numerous countries. Uh, by receiving the Snowden documents, a uh, large cache of highly classified documents that describe the activities of the uh, NSA, uh, I was painting a big target on my back. I, I became interesting to 
the governments of China and Russia and Iran, uh, and it turned out also, as I discovered, the government of Turkey tried to hack my Google accounts. Uh, I, I was anticipating trouble. I was anticipating efforts to steal the material from me and steal my notes. And I was anticipating efforts on the U.S. government side to stop me. Uh, and uh, all of those things bore out as time went on. Now, let's remind everybody, what did Snowden do? When did he do it? And why was it so bad? So we're talking, we're going back now to 2013. Snowden is a contractor working for the National Security Agency in Hawaii. He's an infrastructure analyst, uh, which is what they call someone who uh, is trying to uh, detect and thwart incoming hacking efforts by a foreign adversary like China. Uh, he has previously been a systems administrator in charge of running the uh, the network and the system of classified computers at the NSA's Hawaii outpost. And he makes off, he, he steals uh, tens of thousands of documents. Uh, he copies them, and he, he brings them with him, and he flies off in secret to Hong Kong, where he makes contact with journalists, including me. Now, let's let's go to Snowden here. Many people have watched Citizen Four, and you still can. It's out on the Internet, a, a 2014 documentary, which won an Oscar for Best Documentary Feature, directed by independent filmmaker Laura Poydras. Uh, and it recorded the moments uh, about at the release of the published documents or when they became uh, it became known that he had released them. Uh, now, prominent there is the journalist, and I always like to say attorney, uh, Glenn Greenwald, uh, who was writing for the for the Guardian at the time. Um, but much led up to that moment. Let's bring you in the picture because there were there really were the three of you in a sense. Well, there were uh, the person who held it all together was Laura. Uh, Laura Poitras was uh, the first person to be interacting uh, online with Snowden uh, about these leaks. He tried to reach out to Glenn Greenwald in December of 2012, uh, but he needed a person to know how to write uh, and read encrypted text. He needed Greenwald to learn how to use uh, the basic email encryption programs. Greenwald didn't know how and didn't want to learn. Uh, Snowden sent him, actually he made a video uh, posted it on, on the on the service Vimeo, saying, here's how to do it. And Greenwald never found time for it. So Snowden went to Poitras. And then... <laughs> as soon as Laura Poitras heard from, from this anonymous source, who did not give his name, she came to me and said, I need help trying to figure out whether this is a trap, whether this is a crazy person, whether this is uh, f for real. Because this correspondent says that he has information about a an intelligence community threat to democracy, that he's an intelligence community member, uh, that he knows things and he has documents that he can prove them, uh, and I need to know who I'm talking to. Uh, and so I began a lengthy back and forth with Snowden in which I was trying to figure out whether he's a crazy person or a fabulator or uh, somehow trying to set Laura and me up. And he's trying to figure out whether he can trust me because uh, I'm a member of the mainstream media. I had worked for most of my career at the Washington Post. Uh, and he didn't believe that I or the Post would be able to withstand government pressure 
when he presumed the government would try to get us not to publish the stories. Now, did he know that Laura was going to you? Was this his idea or was that Laura's idea? Because you'd known her for a long time. It was, I, I had known Laura for a long time, uh, and it was her idea to come to me. Uh, she told him, nevertheless, that she was going to do that. Uh, he did not agree to work with me. He did not agree to be my source or to give me copies of the documents until after we had probably more than 100,000 words of interactions back and forth uh, on anonymous encrypted channels. He asked me, I mean, we talked about everything from high school onward. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he wanted to know why I do what I do, um, how I could assure him that I was interested in the truth, regardless of, of uh, outside pressure, uh, and so on. And I was asking him a lot of close questions about a document I had not yet seen. Uh, all this time, we were talking about one document that he had. He didn't give us any clue that there would be many coming. And he didn't want you to investigate him. That would be dangerous. He did not. Uh, and I agreed from the get-go uh, that he would remain anonymous as far as I was concerned. That is to say, I would not disclose his identity to anyone else uh, if he told me uh, in order to get valuable information for the story, in order to allow him to help protect himself. Um, as everyone knows, he decided to come forward and acknowledge that he was the source. Uh, and so someone I knew only as Virax, which I had to look up, it's Latin for truth teller, I knew only as Virax, he eventually made himself known to the world as Ed Snowden. Now, let's get to the person of Edward Snowden. I mean, you describe him as an autodidact, and I've always loved that because you have to have a pretty good education to know that an autodidact means self-taught. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have an education. You know? <laughs> so let's go there. Let's, uh, let's talk about his background. So... I don't know how much stock he put in IQ as a proxy for intelligence, uh, but his is off the charts. He's one of the smartest people I've ever met. Uh, he was a restless child. Uh, he wasn't interested in rules. He was in, wasn't interested in anything that bored him. And so he would do A-plus work in one subject and uh, you know, get C's and D's and fail in another one because he just didn't care. Uh, he spent most of his time on the Internet, uh, which was becoming a thing in his youth. Uh, and he found an endless source of fascinating things out there. And he became very interested in the way things worked uh, and how you make them work to to your benefit. Well, what's interesting for me is a number of things. Um, while he's been described as a high school dropout, he had mononucleosis. And, and he, that was about the time a whole bunch of kids were having mononucleosis. I had a son who almost dropped out of college because of it. Is that right? Uh, yeah, because you lose so much time. You, How do you make it up? And uh, so that's part of why, besides his erratic, we'll say his erratic record, then he's out for, was it three months, four months, something like that. And so he he says, great, I'll go get a GED. And um, that would be great. He had this, he had this, he had this fabulous idea that he could take courses that interested him at the local community college instead of going back to high school um, after he recovered from mono. Uh, he would get the credits from there, and then he could just graduate with his class. And the Board of Education told him, no, thank you. Uh, you are going to have to take the GED. He took it, and he got in the high 90s on all the subjects. 
Now, uh, from there, he doesn't go to college, per se. No, he doesn't. Uh, From there, he decides he's going to join the Army. Uh, and it's because he's found out about another life hack that interests him, that there's there was a um, there was a program called 18 X-ray, which uh, enabled someone to join. And if they went through basic training, and they passed through all the specialized courses, um, and they had very high aptitude, uh, both for the army and intelligence, uh, then they could within a year, they could make sergeant and be a member of the special forces. It was a shortcut through what would otherwise be a process that took uh, several years, probably five years. Uh, Snowden loved the idea of shortcuts, and so he joined. Uh, his his uh, testing was off the charts. Uh, he was his, his physical fitness was fine, and he got most of the way through basic training when he had to leave for medical reasons. Well, he broke both his legs. <laughs> he did fractured tibias uh, on on both legs uh, and get up, soldier. I don't think so. <laughs> well, he tried to get up and he fell right back down again. Uh, so he could have come back after the legs healed and got basic training again, but he would no longer have been able to enroll in this eighteen X-ray program. He would no longer have a shortcut to the special forces, and so he came back rather dejected and uh, recovered and got a rather menial job as a security guard uh, at, at a uh, University of Maryland facility. But the lucky break for him was that in order to get this job, he had to get a security clearance because the facility he was guarding was under construction and it was going to be a high security uh, lab that did some work for the NSA at the University of Maryland. And, in, and once he got his security clearance, a whole world of other jobs opened up to him. You know, it's very interesting for me uh, because uh, he did. You did describe his parents. You know, his father was in the Coast Guard. His grandfather was a rear admiral in the Coast Guard. We're talking about a family that had to look down on not going to college, shortcuts in the military. This was this had to have been just a huge conflict in the family. Well, it was, uh, as was Snowden's predilection for uh, studying whatever he felt like and not studying anything else. So uh, he decided one day that he was going to take a course in advanced networking. Uh, and his father said, you haven't taken beginner networking. <laughs> <laughs> and your point? <laughs> uh, what, what, and how, how, do you, how do you think you're going to get a job taking random courses whenever you feel like it? And how do you think you're going to pass a course like that? Well, he's, he takes the course. Uh, he masters 7,000 pages of uh, documentation. And he graduates after uh, seven days of testing uh, as a Microsoft certified systems engineer. Uh, so he has just got his GED. He's taken no college uh, computer science courses, but he's a Microsoft certified engineer now. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is investigative journalist Bart Gilman. And with over 20 years at the Washington Post, his assignments included Pentagon correspondent and Jerusalem bureau chief. And his record of breaking story after breaking story in the history of our times. Today, he writes for The Atlantic and is a senior fellow at the Century Foundation. You may know him from his earlier books, including Angler, the Dick Cheney Vice Presidency, for which he won the 
Los Angeles Times Book Prize. He's here today with Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State. Well, you know, this is such a perfect storm. I mean, because what he is, is he's got a certificate. And um, when I was uh, program director several years back of uh, the information systems program, we had a number of degrees, and I inherited a master's in information security, which was a great master's degree, but they were having trouble recruiting. And uh, I said, well, the first thing I said, it's just not about, you know, putting up more posters and talking to more people. What's going on here? And I found that in the information security area and the cybersecurity area, that uh, there were a lot of certificates and a lot of people working and it didn't have bachelor's degrees, so they couldn't go on for a master's degree. Um, and the uh, why would you go and spend all this money and time for a master's degree when you could get three or four or five more certificates? I stopped counting at 110 certificates. Good Lord. You know, so it's like, ooh, another perfect storm. So we have the perfect storm of you can get into cybersecurity without you know, uh, any standard way through high school and college. We have the other one here where he gets, you know, the golden uh, ticket of you have a government security clearance by being a security guard. It all came together. Well, exactly. And he was quite young. <laughs> yeah. And he was co- he was collecting a bunch of these certificates, exactly as you're talking about. He was a certified ethical hack- hacker, <laughs> for example. Uh <laughs> which some people found ironic after the fact. Uh, but so, yes, so now he's got he's a, got a top-secret clearance. He's a certified uh, system engineer. Uh, and there are job fairs all around the Washington, D.C. area uh, where there are people desperate to fill jobs in the still relatively new world of cybersecurity and cyber operations. And, and uh, there's just a huge need. This is post-9-11. There's a huge growth in uh, in the defense industry and in the government agencies that do intelligence and defense, and they need a lot of computer people. And Snowden is now eligible to apply for all those jobs. He walks into a job fair, and he gets his first job as a contractor to the CIA uh, the the day he walks in the door. CIA. CIA. I'm like, like, let's take a moment to appreciate this. And so, I mean... And the other thing is, is that you can have all the technical credentials, and if you're going to get a clearance, they have to hire you, pay you. You have to be on the job, but we can't tell you anything, and we have to wait probably 90 days to six months for just sort of a minimal clearance. And this guy, he's got a clearance right now. It's active. Right. You know, no wonder he could walk through the front door. And uh, so, I mean, it was when you finally, when I, I didn't really put it all together till I read the whole thing in your book and went, I see how this works. And I, I'm afraid I have to make a confession um, under full disclosure. You know, years ago when I worked for NASA, I had one of those super high level clearances, you know, where the, the, which are now those stuff, that's all declassified or buried now, you know, and it was called talent keyhole. Oh, I know about that. TK. Oh, me? What? I was one of them. I was one of them. And so you, know, you had a code word for talent and a code word for keyhole. And, uh, you know, the keyhole was the satellite flights and the 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 talent was the sensitive satellite fi- flights. And, um, you know, and you know, they're serious when they brief you in a bunker underneath the vice president's house. Yeah, there are a lot of bunkers under there. <laughs> and so it's just like I was reading this going, I know how this stuff works. How did he get in? And it's like it was magic. It was just magic. He wasn't the profile for anything. 
He wouldn't have been, you know, all these jobs, a lot of them had to have a bachelor's degree, unless you had specialized experience or specialized that. And he just went right through. And for me, also, this idea that, you know, is, we'll go on that he gets, it's, goes to Geneva working, gets beautiful apartment in for the CIA. And so he's the grandson of a rear admiral, the son of a, of a Coast Guard uh, uh, military person. And, you know, he obviously knew how to behave and how to dress and be well-mannered. That's, that's part of the deal. This wasn't a nerd that came out of nowhere. That is true. Uh, he was brought up uh, to be a polite young man. He's uh, almost preternaturally articulate when he feels like talking. You've, I mean, anyone who's turned on a TV any time in the last several years would have would have uh, seen or heard him. Uh, he speaks very well, uh, and he found shortcuts uh, to get past the bureaucracy and to get past the the fact that he did not want to sit down and get a standard college education and have to sit through classes. I mean, in in, in a way. In that sense, he resembles a lot of people in the tech world, um, you know, like, you know, Bill Gates, like uh, Mark Zuckerberg, that who are interested in what they can do and what they can learn for themselves, but they don't want to sit through a structured program. Well, let's take him from from getting hired by the CIA as a contract person uh, in, I guess, Virginia or Maryland, and he gets to Geneva, Switzerland. How did that happen? Well, it happened like this. He was working as a, a contractor and a sysadmin uh, at the CIA, helping run the capital area uh, network systems, um, which are all these self-contained closed networks uh, for classified information. Uh, they can't use the regular internet for that. When he found out about a job that's known colloquially inside the CIA as CAMO, it's uh, it's uh, he's a kind of technology officer working for the Science and Technology Directorate. Uh, he had to go off and get training uh, to do this, uh, and he eagerly accepted it uh, when they came to him and asked him to apply. Uh, again, CIA, post 9-11, it, it's staffing up uh, outposts all around the world. Uh, it is uh, it, it needs... All kinds of people, and one of the kinds of people it needs are, are, are the technical ones. So the, a Camo has the job of understanding how every piece of technology in a CIA station or an embassy works. You have to; they have to know everything from the, you know, sort of the air filtering system to uh, the communications gear from the classified, sort of latest and greatest models of uh, specialized telephone to the really old-fashioned ones that you can actually literally find in a museum but they're still in use in some places around the world. So he gets trained in this, and he also gets trained in you know, the basics of spycraft, uh, how to live a cover story, you know, the, the, the usual stuff that you, that you see uh, in the spy novels. And he names as his first choice Iraq or Afghanistan. He wants to go into the field in a conflict area, uh, and he has meanwhile... Uh, piss off uh, some of his superiors in the training school uh, because of his usual attitude toward authority. And they decide to uh, basically punish him <laughs> by sending him to a fancy, swank uh, European post instead of the, one, the, the, the bare-bones field operation he asked for. Punish me! Punish me, please! <laughs> wow! And you have a very nice car and a nice apartment in Geneva. It's not a bad punishment. That's a good gig. That's a good gig. Well, then, But eventually he ends up back in the United States. 
Right. He, there are several. There are several detours. He sp he spends a period of time working as a uh, uh, contractor for the NSA in Japan. Uh, he travels all around the world, and he likes travel. He likes picking up languages. He's got a facility for it. And meanwhile, while he's in Japan, he comes into another gig. You've been listening to investigative journalist Bart Gelman, the author of Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden, and the American Surveillance State. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about susceptibility to COVID-19 and other risk factors which can affect many aspects of a person's health care. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I'm speaking with investigative journalist Bart Gelman about his book, Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State. Meanwhile, while he's in Japan, he comes into another gig. Um, he's standing around uh, in the computer space one day, uh, and he hears these visiting people who are organizing a security conference, a very highly classified conference of uh, of intelligence and law enforcement personnel from around the, the uh, Pacific region. And they're ooing and eyeing because they don't know what to do. They, they have lost their briefer. They're, they're having a, they're having a two day conference. They need someone to teach a three hour seminar on cybersecurity, on how you, how you defend yourself in a hostile environment. How, how can you use a computer or a telephone in a place where you think you'll be surveilled and, uh, and not give away secrets. Uh, the, uh, the briefer for that, the teacher for that course calls out sick. They say, we got to find somebody else. And Snowden pipes up from one end of the room. Well, I could teach it. <laughs> uh, he's got no credential that says he could teach it, although he's got all sorts of certificates. Uh, it's not part of his job. But he happens to be really good at this stuff. And they say, well, let's see what you got. Uh, bring me some slides tomorrow morning, and we'll see whether you can teach this, this thing. Uh, he stays up all night 
prepares what uh, what the instructor tells me was the most impressive slide deck she'd ever seen on uh, Chinese uh, counterintelligence cybersecurity. Uh, one way or another, he had accumulated a significant amount of knowledge on this, and he's actually turns out to be quite a good teacher. He, so he teaches this course. He gets the highest ratings of the whole conference uh, from the attendees. He's hired again um, on a on a sort of freelance basis to teach at this. It's called the uh, Joint Counterintelligence. Uh, I'm missing one of the letters of JCIC. Anyway, it's a Joint Counterintelligence uh, Training Facility, uh, and they give they give courses all around the world, and uh, they start hiring him to give the course again because he's so good at it. Now, let's get back to you. Here you are, investigative journalist. You're working with Laura. And even between you two, you have to set up a whole lot of stuff because you suddenly realize the world could be looking. All of these people are looking, and you've got to communicate with each other and 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 try to verify who this Verax is. Um, now, now, take us there. What happens then? Well, the more we came to believe that this Virax was likely to be real, the more we came to believe he was likely to give us a genuine, authentic government document, uh, the more we realized uh, that we were trying to sneak up on a surveillance leviathan, uh, and we had to do that without being surveilled ourselves. We had to keep this channel quiet. Uh, we couldn't start spilling that we were doing this story until we were ready to go to the government with it. And so uh, we started doing essentially our, our own version of spy versus spy, uh, our own uh, operational and communication security methods. So, for example, uh, we bought burner laptops. Uh, phones were out of the question. We didn't use phones at all. We bought uh, laptops that we didn't use for anything else that we never used to log on to any of our regular accounts. We installed anonymous proxies that would bounce our communications uh, through a series of posts around the world so that it wouldn't look like it was coming from New York. It would look like it had gone to the Czech Republic and uh, Moldova and somewhere else before it got to its destination. And also bounced through a lot of countries that didn't have any reciprocity with the United States or anybody we had reciprocity with in terms of of exchanging emails. It's like, no, we don't give you your emails. Definitely like go through the Philippines, a great place to go. Go through some of these so that when by the time it gets there, they can't trace where it came from. Well, I, I see I'm talking to someone who knows what she's talking about. Uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, I, we did that. Uh, we And then we also installed... In, in, encryption. Uh, and so the words that we were typing back and forth to each other could not be read. And who was talking to whom could not be discerned because it was anonymous. Uh, and we went through many other precautions to, uh, to keep our work private. And we used the same communications channels between ourselves as we used for this Virax character. Right, and it's sort of you know it's impossible to stay off the grid, but you did a pretty darn good job. The trick actually is to fill it with false footprints. Uh, you can't leave no footprints at all. You can't leave no digital exhaust in the modern communications infrastructure, but you can murk them up uh, with uh, with sort of chaff. Now, one of my favorite parts of the book is when you saw the document he was gonna let you have. 
How many documents did he give you? Well, it was a bait and switch, but in a good way. He had been talking all along about one document, that he was going to show us the document. Eventually, we had to finish talking through ground rules. We had to have understandings of each other. And I was, meanwhile, asking him many questions that would help me authenticate the document once I actually saw it. Because I can't take... I can't take this thing at its face value. It, it, some document says, here I am, a secret program. Uh, uh, I mean, it, it may be, uh, or it may not be. Uh, and the document, even if it's authentic, might not be true. So I get the one document on day one. Uh, and it's a mind blower. It, it describes uh, a secret program that I'll explain to you soon, if you like. Uh, but the next day, I get a one-line email uh, from Laura saying, I need you to come here. I've got to show you something. I'm thinking, what could you possibly have to show me? We just got the document yesterday. I eventually, I make my way to her hotel room where I see that Snowden has now sent along, uh, eight gigabytes of new classified files. And I do a little bit of, uh, playing around in the terminal of my machine so that I can count the files. And I find out that there are 50,000 and change. So 50,000 designated at uh, top secret with a, with SCI, meaning sensitive compartmented information. Some of the compartments were the one that you were in yourself, Moira. TK, Talent Keyhole, Snowden was cleared for those. Uh, and I was freaked out, honestly. Uh, nothing in my experience prepared me for, you know, 50,000 documents. Uh, I, I was trying to even picture what the scale of the thing was. I, I literally, I, I resorted to this cliche where I said, okay, let's suppose each document is one page. That's 50,000 pages. How, how big a pile is that? And I do the arithmetic and it comes out to 17 feet tall where I, I'd have to stand on my own head twice to, 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 to see the top of it. And I, I am, I am exhilarated on the one hand, but I'm also kind of freaking out because I now know that I have this enormous cache, unlike anything that any journalist has ever had, of highly classified documents. And I now have to I have to figure out how not to lose it. I have to figure out how not to let it get stolen. Uh, and I have to figure out how I could possibly report and write about an avalanche like this. Uh, I, the methods I have as a reporter don't scale to 50,000. They don't scale to 500. Uh, I, I, it, it looked like I had a lifetime of work ahead of me. And then, of course, you missed two really good files that would have been helpful. I did miss two files. That... Read me first and <laughs> read me second. <laughs> so now you've learned one of my dark secrets is that I don't always uh, RTFM, uh, read the friggin' manual. So I... I, I, I got this big pile of documents. They were fairly neatly organized into folders and subfolders and sub, sub, subfolders. And right at the top, in the top directory, were two text files that he called Read Me First and Read Me Second. And uh, I didn't do that. Um, I browsed around for a while first, but I finally went and saw it. And, and, and the one document was an overview of, of, of the uh, organization of the files he had given me. And the other was kind of a political manifesto. I have to say, I was thinking it was like an alien gets dropped into the Library of Congress and looks around and sees all these books. And after about a day goes, 
oh, there's a card catalog. Here. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, I just was like, I, I I really had this 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 visceral sense of when you went, oh my goodness, thank you. Now <laughs> now that I see this, I feel a lot better about these fifty thousand user files that are here, some of which were three hundred pages long. You know? <laughs> so. Well, exactly. There was one that was seven thousand pages. Uh, the I mean, it, it was just uh, the 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 scale was stupendous and kind of stunning. And the thing is that hardly any of these things were written in what uh, a, a sort of a, a an outsider would regard as understandable English. These were documents written by and for members of a tribe who were uh, insiders in a highly technical, highly legalized um uh, high jargon environment. They would reference in passing uh, that this relates to the Mainway program, or uh, this is part of uh, turbulence. Uh, and it doesn't say anywhere in the document, well, what is Mainway? What's turbulence? Sometimes you could find answers in other documents. Sometimes you couldn't. Uh, and so there were very few stories that came out of the Snowden documents that were just a matter of, here's one document, let's write down what it says and, and publish that as a story. Uh, Almost all of them required assembling multiple pieces. They required um, interviews uh, with experts, uh, both government and non-government. Uh, they required a lot of uh, sort of puzzle assembly work. Now, distill for us what exactly this revealed. Well, there were a lot of res revelations in these files, uh, and there's more than I'd care to summarize quickly, but I... I can give you several kinds of summaries. Uh, the first story said that the NSA was gathering records of all the telephone calls made by all Americans. Uh, it wasn't listening into the words that were spoken. It was keeping records of who spoke to whom and when and for how long. And as you know, uh, understanding the world of big data, that is an enormously intimate and, and, and revelatory stock of information. If you get a large enough body of data and subject it to uh, big data analytic tools, you can learn uh, quite personal things about people. Uh, so that's one of the Snowden revelations. Um, the, the next one had to do with uh, the NSA obtaining large volumes of information about the content of emails and documents and videos and photographs that were in the accounts uh, that users held uh, on big services like Google and Facebook and Microsoft and Yahoo and so forth. Uh, the uh, the government had always been able to get that kind of information with a warrant, but the, the boundaries of the law had secretly changed. Uh, and there was a secret legal opinion that was classified that no one outside uh, the government could read uh, that said the NSA from now on would just have to state a set of rules that a judge would 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 uh, put a stamp on a set of rules and say, yes, this is how you do it. And then the NSA could just give as many accounts as it wanted, all in, in one long list, say, give me everything you've got on these 100,000 people. Uh, and so it also turned out that when you obtain intelligence information about one target, on average, you are obtaining the communications of 10 bystanders as well. That's just because of the way the system works. And so although the 
the targets were foreign nationals and not Americans. There were huge numbers of Americans who were being swept into this collection. They call that incidental collection in the NSA uh, and in the U.S. intelligence community more broadly. And uh, incidental is a, is a little word that um, that packs a big punch because it means that they can collect oceans of data uh, about Americans as long as they weren't doing it on purpose. It doesn't mean unforeseeable uh, it, it just means that they had another target formally. Uh, but you're, you're in a situation in which, uh, because uh, you're an American, the NSA can't go fishing uh, with a hook baited just for Moira. But it can take a huge net, and it can trawl through the ocean and collect Moira along with hundreds of thousands or tens of millions of other people. Uh, and and, and, now, and now, you're, now you're in the net. Now you're now you've been swept into it while looking for the whale. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm dealing with all of this with a great deal of apparent hilarity uh, because uh, it really brings together what, as I was saying earlier, such a perfect storm. Uh, And I would be uh, well, well, for me, I don't I no way excuse what Snowden did. Uh, you really, this enables you to really understand how he got there. Um, and, uh, and, and I understand what it means to carry the weight of knowing some information which your country is holding secret. And, and frankly, just knowing it is a tremendous burden. Um, and I, I completely agree with you. Now, as, as someone who is not authorized to know these things, but who is the recipient of the leak, and I now have all these secrets in my head, uh, some of which I, I believe should never be disclosed in public, um, I completely identify with this feeling you're describing of, of, of the burden. And, and it never compromised my ethics as to what was going on uh, or what I learned, um, but it did compromise... Snowden's ethics. So look, there had been since 9-11 a huge change in the rules, a a whole set of changes in the rules that enabled the NSA to sweep in more information than it ever had before, to learn also in the course of that a lot more about its own citizens, about the government's own citizens. This was a a shift in the boundaries between government and the sovereign public. And Snowden believed that because it was done in secret, and because it infringed on the liberty interests of Americans, that they ought to have a right to debate it, uh, and that it should not be allowed to stay secret. Uh, And if I did not agree with him about some of those files, then I wouldn't have published. So uh, I did not publish anything like everything he gave me. Uh, But um, every story that you read in the Washington Post came from me or my colleagues because we believed uh, that there was a legitimate reason to, for public debate on those subjects. And you finally did take a stand and that you, you write that you think Snowden did substantially more good than harm, even though you're, pre, you're prepared to accept, as he is not, that his disclosure must have exacted a price in lost intelligence. Right. I mean, he would like to say uh, there's no proof of any harm done by any of his disclosures. And as a technical matter, that may be true uh, because the harm done would itself be classified. Uh, They can't say we were listening in on terrorist X or foreign leader Y and they read your story and now we can't hear them anymore. That that would itself be a classified fact. I find it impossible to believe that 
so many secrets could have been spilled at zero cost. Uh, but there, there's another whole set of collection losses, of intelligence losses, that are more ambiguous. Uh, think about it this way: What if you just the, the what? What if technology companies discover from reading a Washington Post story that the NSA is breaking into their infrastructure overseas? that the NSA is tapping into the cables that connect their data centers. That was uh, one of, I think, the most important stories that I did for the newspaper. And what if those technology companies respond angrily by, by uh, trying to ensure that this will never be allowed to happen again by encrypting the links that the NSA was listening in on? So you had, you, you had the, technology in, the technology information industry spending tens of millions of dollars specifically to thwart the operations of their own government uh, that broke into their, basically broke into their houses. Uh, If if that happens, then the NSA loses some of its intelligence collection uh, because the tech companies are preventing it. But that's the system operating as it's intended. That's consumers being upset and angry to learn that the NSA was spying uh, that's the companies responding to market forces uh, to give more security and privacy. Uh, and that's the NSA losing collection as a result. Uh, likewise, uh, if public pressure leads Congress to uh, vote for a new law that prevents the NSA from collecting the call data records the way it had been, and that also happened, then the NSA has had a collection loss. If foreign governments are angry about what the uh, NSA did, and uh, adjust their cooperation accordingly. That's also a loss. But this is all the normal workings of the marketplace and the political systems. Now, one final question. Um, uh, you're no longer, you know, in the crosshairs, in the active crosshairs of Snowden has it, what's going to get released, all of that. Uh, it's seven years later. Um, but uh, but you, you did discover that they already had a, a couple of files on you. <laughs> They do <laughs> before they really started looking. <laughs> well, the, the deputy director, of the, the deputy director of the NSA, told me that he, uh, the way he was able to put it without um, saying it in, in classified terms, he said that uh, I, I, I should presume that uh, Russia and China had nice thick files on me uh, because of the Snowden affair. Uh, I. I I knew that there were extensive efforts to hack into my devices and my accounts. Uh, I watched it happen in front of my eyes uh, when my iPad screen gutted out and uh, Unix terminal command started scrolling across the iPad, which is not normal. Uh, and it said that it was discarding its operating system and loading a new one. Uh, you know, <laughs> that was my first clue that uh, that I was being being hacked. Uh- yeah, we, we like to say I can I can neither confirm nor deny that <laughs> there's a big elephant right over here. <laughs> when I asked for some of my files from the FBI, the CIA, and other government agencies, uh, in, in one case, the CIA said that it could neither confirm nor deny the existence of any classified files about me because their existence would be classified. That's not what you want to hear. I'm still in court uh, litigating that one. Oh, really? Oh. Well, I'm sorry to say you're 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 now associated with me. You're only one hop away. 
I know. They'll say, you again? (laughs) I know how it feels. I know how it feels. We have not gotten to so much of this book. There is all kinds of things, how you keep things secret. You you went and saw Snowden twice. Uh, there, there's just a lot to this book. Um, and so uh, this interview doesn't do it justice. And I do hope you'll come back and see us again, Bart. We'd really appreciate it. That would be my absolute pleasure. My guest today is Bart Gelman. The book is Dark Mirror, Edward Snowden and the American Surveillance State. It's published by Penguin Press, an imprint of Penguin Random House. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. When it comes to COVID-19, we know that the elderly, as well as those with underlying conditions, are most at risk. But what about other risk factors? Could a person be genetically susceptible to COVID-19? Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent, Dr. Daniel Kraft. Yeah, well, we know, as you mentioned, our genes certainly play a role at our risk for disease, uh, what drugs might work, and uh, how we might recover. And now we're starting to ask the question of, you know, how do your personal genetics um, interact with your risks of dying or having a really bad case of coronavirus? Uh, Because it's not just about the pathogen, in this case, the virus, it's also about the host. And uh, each of us has different characteristics, our age, our blood type, uh, all of which our blood, our, type? our blood type is driven by our genetics. It seems well, like our blood type is driven by our genetics, right? right. Oh, and, and our certain form of how our immune system is wired, uh, our ability to metabolize uh, certain drugs that might treat coronavirus will certainly be driven by our pharmacogenetics. So the question is being asked: Who are the patients who are ending up in the hospital and on a ventilator and, and dying? And do they have genes that are associated? Uh, with this. And very recently, um, the COVID-19 host genetics initiative was launched, which is a project involving about 700 scientists around the world who are comparing the DNA from uh, pandemic, you know, COVID-19 pandemic victims, um, their profiles to folks who didn't end up as as sick or, or dying. And so it's a really exciting, you know, crowdsource initiative around the world to start making sense of this so we can start maybe even identifying, because we know that men seem to have a higher risk factor of dying. Is that based on the fact that they have, you know, one X chromosome? We're understanding the um, potential role of our ACE2 receptors. Those are the receptors that are on many of our cells. You may have heard of ACE2 inhibitors uh, that many people take for uh, hypertension, high blood pressure. Uh, it's the ACE2 receptor on many cells. It seems to be the pathway that the virus, the COVID-19 virus, uses to enter cells. So if you have a different genetic subtype of that receptor, maybe you'll have different susceptibilities. So that's one hot area that the geneticists are looking at as an example of differences between individuals and their susceptibility to being infected or if they are infected to how, how pathogenic that disease will be. This is what happens with new things that we've never seen before. Well, this is an example of how rapidly teams and innovation are coming together. And there's a great story uh, summarizing this by David Ewing Duncan in the April 30th edition of Vanity Fair. But it's, you know, it's encouraging. You know, we've talked in the prior episodes how the the COVID-19 pandemic crisis is catalyzing all this new energy and thinking and science. And hopefully that the application of that science and those collaborations will go well beyond COVID, but may even catalyze new cures for cancers to other diseases that might save 
many times more lives than those who, who are dying or being affected by the coronavirus. But this particular initiative, I think, is exciting because it's happening quickly. It hopefully is going to lead to actionable information. One of the challenges we have in the clinical endeavor, on the front lines, that is, is if a patient rolls into the emergency room with shortness of breath and symptoms of COVID and test positive, do you need to admit that patient? Are they likely to get sick or not? What are their risk factors, genetic or otherwise, which is going to guide do you put them in the intensive care unit? Do you send them home? Um, is it going to start to guide what drugs we might give very early in their course of infection uh, versus later? Is it going to start to guide um, how we uh, develop vaccines? Because certain vaccines may not work with certain genetic subtypes or might work better or have certain side effects. So personalized medicine, precision medicine is hopefully going to come to treating and preventing COVID-19, and our genetics are certainly part of that. We don't waste any time with let's see if this will work anymore. Well, I mean, it, 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 it's not just about whether it's going to work anymore, but how can we quickly get to that answer? So the COVID-19 virus was sequenced in China in early January of 2020. That now genetic sequence was emailed around the world, and teams quickly started taking that sequence and developing vaccines, some of which have already entered clinical trials less than three months later. So we can start to accelerate uh, using the genetics, not just of the, the pathogen, but also potentially of the patients who are positively affected, start to apply machine learning, big data, institutions from around the world to, to emerge. And, and we've talked about you know, data competitions in the past. Maybe that data can go online and data scientists, whether you're a grandma with a statistics degree or a grad student in statistics, can start to um, look at that information. And sometimes solutions may come from, from unexpected places. Show me that data. I want to work on it. Show, like not it. show me the money. Show me the data. <laughs> show me the genome. Show me the, you know, the physiome. And, you know, we're learning in health and medicine that but we can really move to an era where it's the combination of our omics, our not just our genes, but our our genome, our metabolome, our microbiome, our our our, our phenome. Uh, you know, all these ohms. The problem is that's overwhelming, and it's not that they act in silos. It's when we see them in combination, and that that needs the power of big data, machine learning, to make sense of it. So, par- potentially, maybe a year or so from now, you'll have your own sort of genetic risk score for COVID nineteen, just like. Some people are more susceptible to the flu or are going to respond well or not well to a certain drug. And that's going to really help guide our recovery and our treatment and prevention of of COVID-19 into the future. Daniel, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, Mara. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.